the presenting sponsor of Top Ducks is Netflix, now presenting the documentary series Harry and Meghan. From award-winning director Liz Garbus, the Boston Globe calls Harry and Meghan a fascinating look into a profoundly rarefied way of life. Emmy eligible for outstanding documentary or nonfiction series. I think the log line of this film would be an exploration of the lives of three intersex activists and the stranger than fiction case of medical abuse that explains the treatment of so many intersex people today. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson and welcome to Top Docs. Today I'm talking to Julie Cohen, the director of Everybody. Everybody recently had its world premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival. Julie Cohen is an Academy Award-nominated and Emmy-winning filmmaker whose films include the Academy Award-nominated RBG, My Name is Polly Murray, Julia, and most recently, Gabby Giffords Won't Back Down. Each of those films was directed by Julie and by her frequent filmmaking partner, Betsy West. Prior to these films, Julie was a longtime NBC News staff producer and it was from looking through the NBC News archives that Julie found the story that became the beginning of this journey, which ultimately led to a film about three intersex people and the history and treatment of intersex people. I believe it's a story that has really not been told, certainly not in the mainstream media, and Julie handles it brilliantly by focusing on three incredible people, River Gallo, Alicia Roth-Weigel, and Sean Seifel-Wall. It is their stories and their activism that really form the heart of this film. This was Julie's third visit to Top Docs, but her first without Betsy. And I really enjoyed talking to Julie about this film. Everybody is being released by Focus Features and is in theaters now. Go see it and stay till the end of the credits. You'll be happy you did. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Instagram at TopDocsPod and on Twitter also at TopDocsPod. And now my conversation with Julie Cohen, the director of Everybody. Julie Cohen, welcome back to Top Docs. Thanks so much. Great to be here. It's great to have you and congratulations on everybody. I want to start out by asking a question that I think funders often ask, which is why this topic, why this filmmaker, and why now? Why this topic, the experiences of intersex people, really has to do with how intensely undertold this story has been. The why now is partly answered by the fact that becomes quite clear in the story that intersex people have been quiet for a long time, largely because they've either been told to keep their conditions a secret by their doctors, by their parents, or in many cases, they aren't even aware of their own medical histories themselves. In recent years, with the growth of all kinds of different movements from the feminist movement to the gay and lesbian rights movement, and I think most relevantly to the trans rights movement over the past decade or two, 
the opening up of the conversation on gender has led more intersex people to come out as intersex, making it possible for a filmmaker such as myself to make a film that's not outing people or exposing those who don't want to talk publicly about being intersex, but is actually working in connection with intersex people who are very much out and proud intersex people already. And why did you want to make this film? The why me on this film is a little more complicated. I happen to not be an intersex person myself. I was an NBC News producer for many years before I started making docs. My friends at NBC News had invited me back to take a look through their archives for stories that might make a good jumping off point for the documentary. In their archives, I found a pretty incredible historic story that with further research proved to have surprising modern day implications. And it turned out that looking into the modern intersex rights movement led me to a bunch of really incredible dynamic young people who are out there fighting for their own human rights and the human rights of intersex babies, children, and adults that have followed them. I feel like the general audience for this film is probably going to be fairly ignorant on the topic of intersex people, and I definitely include myself in that category. People just know so very little about intersex people. How did this sort of low baseline of knowledge on the part of your audience represent perhaps a new challenge for you? Yeah, I would say that telling a story in which you understand that your audience is really going to be coming in, many of them with a blank slate, did present real filmmaking challenges. I made a decision pretty early on that I was going to be, I would say, more expositional in this film and more expositional near the top than I think documentary filmmakers generally tend to be or like to be. I felt like, oh, just thinking of this in, you know, a narrative arc where you're just following characters as their lives unfold wasn't going to really be fair to the audience for this film. I didn't want people to feel like we were assuming they had a base of knowledge about intersex issues when so few people in our society have that base of knowledge. I decided pretty early on we are going to need an expert in this, but also the intersex people who are the, at the core of the film are experts on their own lives and their own bodies themselves. And near the top of the film, I wanted them to give us some kind of explanatory sound bites that basically tell you, at least say, this is what intersex is. Be being intersex means that you have biological, anatomical, or chromosomal components that make you not fall squarely into the male and female boxes as normally defined, as the way that Alicia says that is that they show you that it's not exactly the male and female boxes that you might see on birth certificates. It's not as clear cut, maybe, as you think. And for intersex people, their bodies make that quite clear. And I would just say that I think you handled it very deftly in terms of presenting the audience with a baseline of knowledge doing it often from the personal perspective of your principal participants while not getting bogged down in it. It's a very story-driven film, but it's also extremely educational. The last four feature docs that you directed were with Betsy West, and those four films represent 
a really impressive body of work. You've got Gabby Giffords, Won't Back Down, Julia Child, My Name is Polly Murray, and RBG. Was this a project you'd been developing on your own for a while? Yes, this is a project that I'd been developing on my own, dating back to just around the time RBG came out. Those other films all came out subsequently. Meanwhile, Betsy and her husband are working on a doc together right now, and Betsy and I are continuing to develop and work on some documentaries together and some separately. Good to know. You're together and you're separate. So let's talk about the opening sequence. It's kind of a crazy gender reveal montage of what seem to be like YouTube clips of just the most insane human behavior imaginable, things involving rifles and bow and arrows and a combine, a Ferris wheel, all kinds of just incredibly imaginative, but somewhat (laughs) bizarre demonstrations of what the gender reveal is of whatever the child is that they're celebrating the birth of. The first thing we hear Saifa say in the film is, we live in a world that's so binary. Why do you think historically we've been so closed off to thinking about gender in a non-binary way? It's a question that I've wrestled with throughout working on this project and don't have a clear-cut answer to beyond saying that as a society, we like putting things in boxes. That's just true. And I think it's become particularly true in a problematic way, we've realized in recent years on issues of gender, sexual orientation, and race. Like, it's just easier. It feels easier anyway to want to categorize everyone. I think one of the downsides to this, and there are a number of downsides, but one of the downsides is like part of the reason we're trying to put people in categories is so that some categories can have power over others. That's been true on the gender question. If you've got things like the males and the females, and then the males are going to feel that they have some domination over females, that's been true in racial questions. Like it's, it makes it easier for us to stratify our society by putting people in categories. But of course, for the people who are placed into the categories, it can feel wrong and it could be a problem. And that goes all across the spectrum. I actually think if you start talking to your friends, I mean, I feel like we all feel a little harmed is a strong word, but I think we all feel a little uncomfortable with the strictness of the gender boxes. Anyone who's saying men are supposed to be like this and women are supposed to be like that, that's like no good for women. It's no good for men. It's certainly no good for people who identify as somewhere along a spectrum of male-female existence. I wish I knew why we put ourselves in boxes, but certainly we do. And obviously the idea of that open was to demonstrate that in hopefully an entertaining way, but a way that makes you think when we then lead to meeting people who really don't fit in those boxes from birth, understanding how painful and disorienting that can be. Briefly, what led you to choose Saifa, Alicia, and River to be the three main people you focus on in the film? Yeah, so I watch a lot of docs, obviously, as doc people do. And I found that in a documentary that in a verite way follows a number of different participants, not just a biographical story, when you're following a few people, I find it very helpful for the people to be all connected to one another. 
I tend to feel like a little bit less jerked around from one story to another if I know that the stories are all coming together and that the participants know one another. So I had in mind from the start that I would find three people who knew one another. I found Alicia online pretty early, Googling intersex activists and started talking to her. She recommended that I should talk to Saifa, who I did. We Zoomed because he lives in Manchester, England. We had great conversations. I thought these two people are incredible. I was starting to sort of follow their activities. They were getting ready for a big demonstration. And on one of our early days of filming, a third person, River Gallo, who's our third main protagonist in the story just walked into a scene. It's a scene that appears in our film when they're all making posters together. There were actually seven or eight people that day. I interviewed all of them and I just found that River's sound bites just really popped. I didn't even know that they were an actor at that point. Then I thought, you know what, I've got my three people. I could have continued to search, but I was so impressed with these three people as film participants and as humans that they seemed really like just the right mix. And one thing you do in the film is you do this group interview with the three of them, which is shot in like a kind of bucolic backyard setting, I think in LA. Right. Often I see that protagonists are interviewed separately. Why did you want to interview the three of them together? First of all, I thought that their answers to some kind of general questions that I was going to ask about being intersex might be in conversation with each other. I thought they would have some things to say about each other's thought, particularly on the idea of what their relationships were like with their parents or the extent to which secrecy and being intersex were stitched together in their lives. And as I say, I wanted them to feel connected to one another for the viewer from the start. So I thought like pretty early in the film, I want you to see these three people together and understand, okay, these are the three main people because we're, we're about to get into each one's individual story. When I'm a viewer, like you're always trying to feel where the film is going. And I get a little frustrated if I'm jumping from one story to the next. And I think, oh my, are there going to be like 18 of them? Are they going to be like, you know what you're getting? We've got three people. We're about to get a little bit of each one story. Bear with us. It's all going to come together. Yeah, I think it works really well because it does situate you in the story in a nice way. You kind of know, okay, these are the folks that I'm going to get to know in the next hour and a half. They do bounce off each other very nicely and add to each other's comments, therefore deepen the story. And they also just have a great camaraderie. As you get to know from watching the film what it is to be intersex and the really difficult and unique experience that these people have been through, you can understand why they gravitate towards one another and become really close really quickly. Like a lot of intersex people have very close friends who are other intersex activists. And it's not like there are that many intersex activists around the country yet. So, you know, there definitely is an immediate family kind of feeling that they have. And they've all said that. So early on in the film, in archival footage from 1963, we're introduced to John Money, a PhD and a famous sex researcher from Johns Hopkins University who's lecturing to a group of well-dressed folks. It's in black and white. We don't really know who this audience is, but they're very interested in what he has to say. And I believe the spark for this film was you seeing this archival footage at NBC News. And you come back to this footage a number of times, and money and his work becomes a major focus of the film. Can you just tell us, especially for folks who haven't seen the film yet, 
What was money's central role in how doctors, the medical establishment, and really the entire culture came to understand intersex characteristics and, quote, what should be done about it? So Dr. Money was a sex researcher at Johns Hopkins, a PhD psychologist, and was actually a pioneer at looking into gender going back to the 1950s. He had a theory that up until age three, a child's gender is very malleable. And his idea for how this theory would apply to babies that are born intersex is that we can just make everyone's life easier by picking a gender very early, physically and hormonally and surgically sometimes, putting the child into one gender, most usually about 90% of the time female, because that is anatomically easier surgically to make a baby a girl, and treat the baby as a girl, give them hormones, tell them that they're a girl, and basically that's the best way to treat ambiguity rather than letting things stay ambiguous, rather than having a child be non-binary, of course, a term that didn't exist in the 1950s when Dr. Money started doing his research, rather than letting there be any blurred lines here, let's just turn the baby into a girl, raise them as a girl, and everything will be fine. Dr. Money, as a test case, ended up taking a case of two identical twin boys, 100% biologically, anatomically male, in which one of the twins was injured in a botched circumcision. The boy's penis was burnt off. It's like horrible to talk about, but I think that's the plainest way to say it by an electrocautery machine. And the parents were understandably devastated. They became aware of Dr. Money, who was going around on television talking about his theories of gender malleability, reached out to him saying, is there anything that you could do for us in our situation with our child? And Dr. Money basically told them, oh, this is no problem. We can take your baby boy with an injured penis, turn him surgically into a girl, raise him as a girl, and he'll have a happy, normal life as a she. They changed her name to Brenda. Of course, Dr. Money, without mentioning this so much to the parents, was ecstatic at this situation because the child had an anatomical twin brother. He had a test case. He could follow these children's developments over years, and he had his test subject and his control to the twin brother. And he basically reported over a period of years that his experiment to turn this baby into a girl had been a huge success. Actually, it was not at all a success. The child was miserable, always basically understood that he was a boy, even though he had no idea of his medical history. And it wasn't until the child was a teenager that he learned what had happened, started to switch his life back, began living as a male. But that fact, the switch away from the experiment, didn't spread the way the initial studies had because the Children's names had always been anonymous in all the studies. So basically, the study is spreading around to medical journals all around the world that you can raise a child in either gender as long as you make the switch early enough was used to justify and to guide the treatment of intersex babies and children for many, many decades, up to and including today, although today it does not always happen, but it still does sometimes happen. Obviously, this case raises many, many ethical questions and historical questions, for instance, about 
the medical establishment and why this one guy was able to have his very faulty research published without question. And you do have an expert, Dr. Catherine Dalkey, who says, you know, this is a kind of unusual situation where you have one researcher who's basically allowed to just become the expert and that's it. Why do you think there was this failing on the medical establishment's part that they didn't look more closely at the science? You know, I think anything involving sexuality makes people uncomfortable. I don't think doctors are exempt from feeling uncomfortable. And I think that the thought that there might be a relatively simple solution to the quote unquote problem of intersex children like that's what everyone gravitated to. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. This involves genitals. You know, parents completely understandably, including the parents of our protagonists in the film, are confused, alarmed, and devastated when they understand that they have an intersex baby. Rather than knowing this is just a possible variation, a way that a child can be born, this is often catching parents by surprise usually catching parents by surprise. And when you have doctors telling you, we have a solution to this, your child can be quote unquote normal, parents gravitate towards it. But I think that's actually true of the medical people too. They see that their patient's parents are distressed. They want to be able to fix this. And so when Dr. Money came along publishing these studies saying, oh, I have this case where it's worked out really well, and yeah, you can't talk to the actual children involved because they're anonymous, because obviously we want to keep this, pro you know, the secrecy served to make it harder to expose the truth also because nobody knows what people were talking about. And even follow-up studies that are done of intersex people that have had surgery are done anonymously. So it's really hard to get a real sense of what the true outcomes are. It's a pretty tragic story. But one of the things that's heartening is that David Reimer himself stood up to Dr. Money and said, I'm not going to take these hormones. I don't need them. I don't want them. And I'm not going to do it. And this kind of begins this whole process of really unraveling the hegemony that Dr. Money had over this case. Eventually, he was pretty much debunked for this. David then years later went on TV on Dateline and told his story and he decided to right. unmask himself and reveal his own name. But I guess the fact that you chose three intersect activists, I think is important because it feels like David in this situation became an activist for himself. You know what? David became an activist for himself. And he later, by speaking publicly about this case, was becoming an activist for intersex people because he became aware and he understood that surgeries were being done basically as a result of his case. And that was his whole reason for coming forward. He had done a few interviews where he was in shadow. And in the end, he's like, no, I'm going to talk about this publicly. You can see my face. This is my name. This is the story. Because of his concern about intersex people, I think that part of the story hadn't appeared in the original story that Dateline had done. They were really telling, understandably, the story of that incredible case. And looking through the field tapes of the interviews that had been filmed for that story, we found the conversation that he had with the correspondent explaining that it was actually because of the use of his case for intersex people that he decided he was going to come forward. You mentioned the role of silence in all of this, and it's certainly a big part of the film. 
the fact that another aspect of being an intersex person in our society is the overwhelming pressure put on intersex people themselves, on their parents and families to stay silent and keep all this a secret. And as you mentioned, this silence even extends to what intersex people are allowed to know about themselves and their own medical records. Can you talk about the harmful effects of this silence on intersex people and on their relationship with other people? I would say for the people that we feature in the film, that the secrecy and silence portion of their childhood and youth has been even more painful for them than the physical, that having non-consensual surgeries that had they had a choice about, that their choice would have been not to do those surgeries. You know, growing up feeling like there's something really wrong with you that's so shameful that you can't even talk about it to your siblings or your grandparents, that's just a really painful way to grow up. Again, it's like kind of understandable when you think of our mentality on questions of gender or anything having to do with sex going back a few decades. But I, I feel like we've learned through so many different movements, whether we're talking about the LGBT rights movement or talking about sexual assault, it often turns out that feeling silenced can just be really bad in all kinds of ways and can cause unintended impacts that really last people a lifetime. And I think the decision of the three people in our film to come forward for each of them was really the start, even though it felt really scary at the time that they were coming forward, two of them some years ago, and one of them is really doing some of their biggest coming forward while we're filming. I think that's a moment of liberation for them. They're actually doing it for other purposes. They're doing it because they're trying to change how the medical system operates. But even if they don't succeed in that battle, which I think they are going to succeed, by the way, but even if they don't succeed, they've had a victory. Like the moment of coming forward is the big victory. Another aspect of this is the surgery itself and the issue of consent, which this country has a long history, unfortunately, a dark history of surgeries, whether it's forced sterilization of women, whether it's medical experiments, where consent was not a part of the medical procedures that were done. That does seem to be the case here. And it seems like there is a movement to change that. Can you talk a bit about the issue of consent when it comes to these surgeries, which often happen at a very young age? Consent is very tricky in this context. Because, of course, non-consensual surgeries we're talking about in this film are surgeries that the patient's parent, the relevant adults, did consent to. Although I think a lot of activists would argue that they were consenting without full information and education. I, I do understand that parents should have the ultimate say in their infant children's care. But I think it's a case where... The parent getting a full education is really important. And that's why one of the things that the activists are working for, and I think really the most important thing that they're working for, is creating a situation where parents who are pregnant with a child that's already understood to be intersex, and that comes up more and more as our prenatal technology improves, or parents that have an intersex baby can get educated 
on the subject rather than just being told, oh, this is a birth defect, which is often the language that's used. This is a birth defect and we have like corrective surgery. If you're a parent and that's what you're being told in the obstetrics ward, absolutely you can understand why a parent would go along with that. It seems like it would be much better if parents understood that having an intersex child was a possibility and then understood that actually there's a whole variety of possible ways to handle this medically, many of which don't involve any immediate intervention. And we should also add that some of these surgeries are happening later, like at 12 or 13. Yes, some of them happen later on. There are some intersex conditions, in fact, which don't present themselves until a child is going through puberty. And I think that was one of the more heart-rending aspects of these stories was hearing that in a couple of cases, they hadn't been told anything until it was like, here's the situation, and in a month, you're going to be getting surgery. Right. The case of David Reimer does occupy a big sort of narrative chunk of the film. And I was curious, there's a moment where we see your three main protagonists actually watching this footage. So we're watching it along with them, and we're watching them watch it, and you're watching them watch it too as the director. What made you want to show them this footage and kind of engage with them about the David Reimer story? I think my real motivation for that was soundbite that David Reimer gives where he's literally saying the reason I'm coming forward telling this story is because I understand that my case has impacted intersex people because he's no longer living. It's like him speaking to today's modern day intersex people. So in some sense, I felt like I wanted them to hear him say that. Another reason I think is a little more... I don't know, maybe it's a little more wonky, but I was just trying to connect. Like, there's a lot going on in this movie, and I was trying to connect it and make it feel like in some way it's all one story. So it seemed like the best way to bring in this kind of coming out of left field, whole other story that dates back like 50 years would be to not lose total sight of the three people who are basically carrying us through this film. So allowing them to watch it, just to see also how they would respond. Two of the three of them were not very familiar with the case at all. Saifa, the one who's a PhD student, knew a fair amount about the Dr. Money, David Reimer story, but none of them had seen the footage. And I think the footage of David Reimer particularly like really brings a lot of emotion. And I just wanted to give a sense of how they responded to that emotion. It was a tricky part of the film to do because there are parts of the David Reimer story that you see in the film that I actually didn't show them and that we weren't seeing them watch, trying not to be like a traumatizing situation. But I just thought of anyone, they were going to understand the enormity of what had happened to David Reimer, because actually there is a big connection between what happened to David Reimer and what the three of them have been through. Especially in terms of activism, there is an intergenerational aspect here. And following the scenes that show David Reimer, the mood of the film changes drastically. We see some grainy video footage from 1996. It shows a small group of people sitting on the grass talking. It almost just seems like a picnic somewhere on a nice summer day. But this is a group that's making history as a founding group of the intersex movement. Saifa herself describes this as a radical moment. And I just found myself being really fascinated by the juxtaposition of what seems so just informal, almost like a picnic, as I said, 
and the fact that this could be the birthplace of the whole social justice movement. Can you talk about learning about this history and what it was like for you to see this footage and kind of grab onto it, which really does feel like a historic document? Yeah, it really feels historic. I'd like to pretend like it took complex archival research to find that, but honestly, it's on YouTube. Just looking at intersex history on YouTube, came across what just seemed to me to be an amazing, we use a couple minutes in the film, but it's about a half hour, a little over a half hour videotape of these really brave young activists deciding that they're going to tell their stories publicly in the mid 90s. What I love about that footage so much, because actually it's people talking about some pretty horrible experience that they've had, but you can feel what revelatory moment it is for all of them. Like they're feeling really great about the opportunity to share their stories with others to understand them in a way they too have been survivors of a lot of not only painful non-consensual surgeries, but also shame, secrecy, stigma, really complicated relationships with their parents. And to be able to have that conversation with nine other people who share the same experience, it feels like they're having like this really beautiful moment. I think it's sort of a precursor of some of the moments that the activists in our story have as well. You know, I really worked hard, I'll say, to bring a lot of joy, humor, music, and positivity to a story that has some real dark aspects to it. I actually like movies that are fun to watch, and I really work hard to make things entertaining. And doing that with this subject matter felt like a challenge, but one that I really wanted to take on. It also has a real vibrancy and electricity, and some of that can be attributed to the activism of these three individuals. At some point in their lives, they each decided to take a public stand for intersex rights and to stand up for themselves, to talk about what was done to them without really their full knowledge or possibly consent. Without sort of speaking for them, they're not here to talk about it from their own perspectives. But as you spoke to them in making this film, what was your perception of how important you think it is for each of them to have taken a public stand? I think for each of them, it was really like a seminal moment in their lives and they're developing who they are. We try to show in the film after we show them coming out publicly as intersex, starting to fight for intersex human rights, including protesting and demonstrating and working on legislation and doing sort of the hard work of activism. We also show some of the lighter side of who they are now. Alicia has been asked to be on the cover of Austin Woman magazine, River doing a red carpet at Outfest in LA and doing it in a way where they're just coming as themselves. I'm saying they because River identifies as non-binary, trans femme. And there are times in life where River has felt very compelled to present as male. That was most of their life. But now River is who they are. You understand they're non-binary when you meet River and like there can be joy and beauty in that too. Like the only ways to be beautiful aren't just like beautiful woman, beautiful guy. You can also be beautiful and non-binary and River is such a great example of that. So I guess I slid from talking about their activism to the celebratory side of their lives, but I think there's a connection. I think without coming forward and without fighting for what they think is right, I don't think they could have the full lives that each of them is now living. 
Yeah, they seem to really come into their own as people when they take that step. Right. I'm not 100% sure of the timeline, but I imagine that the time you were making this film was also the time when the attack on trans rights was shifting into high gear. Yeah. How do intersex rights and the intersex movement relate to the trans rights movement? There are a lot of connections between the trans rights movement and the intersex rights movement, as we try to show at some points in the film. First of all, intersex people with their sort of medically provable from the records, non-binary bodies help provide a piece of argument that trans rights activists have really wanted to employ. It's something that Alicia, one of our protagonists, has done a lot of lobbying with. Just part of these anti-trans bills that are coming down, including the one that DeSantis just signed into law in Florida, have language in them that says biology is a male and a female and it's immutable and it's whatever your birth records and your birth certificate show and that's a fact and like I as the governor of Florida are going to sign that fact into law except that like it's not a fact and the, the three people in our film all have medical records that show it's not a fact. I will say in some cases that intersex people have been a little bit frustrated because they don't just want to be used as like exhibit A in the trans case when they have their own very important battles that they're trying to fight to stop the secrecy, to stop the shame, and to try to educate in a way that will reduce these non-consensual surgeries. Um, and they want to make sure that trans people are standing up for them too. Another big connection though, is all of these anti-trans laws that you've been hearing about, or at least the vast majority of them, also interestingly include anti-intersex language, even if it includes like a kind of a kooky flip. These laws that a lot of red state legislators are bringing forward, and in some cases have passed, that say, oh, you can't do gender-affirming care for trans people under 18, trying to make that illegal, also have these little subsections of them and say, but if the child has an intersex condition and they name the specific conditions, it's just fine to do surgery on that child. So we don't want to provide care for those who want to do gender affirming care, but actually enforced medical intervention on intersex kids is okay. And it's part of these laws that hasn't, you know, the laws are long in fairness to like the journalists covering them. But by the time you get to page 30 or 40, you'll see the part about intersex people. It's in the vast majority of them. I think the intersex people in my film and others would make the argument like we've got an important issue too. And while we're fighting for trans rights, people should also be hearing and understanding about the battle for intersex rights. Yeah. And thank you for filling us in about how intersex people are being targeted by these laws as well. River at the end of the movie says, I do think before we die, there's going to be a huge revolution because it's already starting right now. Are you optimistic about this coming revolution, perhaps? There are so many things in the political sphere right now that I am pessimistic about. Intersex rights is something I am optimistic about because I actually think once you get educated about, like exposed to the light of day, the practices that have been used and the treatment of intersex people just don't make any sense. And you can actually take the left-right arguments out of it 
And like, they still don't make any sense. Even the right wing reaction on intersex rights hasn't so much been like these people are wrong. It's been to just try to minimize it. It's just been to say, oh, there's barely any people. And this is just like the tiny slice. Or there is some denial of the existence of intersex people. But I think that's just people tend to sometimes confuse trans and intersex people. I do think that with education increasing, obviously I think my film is part of that, but there's a lot more going on. Also, this movement is picking up steam. Alicia has a book coming out later this year from a major publisher. There's another intersex rights activist that has another book coming out from a major publisher. So I think once this stuff gets into the news, people start to educate themselves a little bit. Cause I, I know I looked at this, I'm like, this seems like it's ripe for a change. And I think parents who have an intersex child might respond quite differently. And some are starting to respond differently as they become educated. And there also are a number of laws being passed in different localities that mandate education for people in an OBGYN setting if they learn about having an intersex child. And I think that would make a huge difference. I also think your film is going to make a difference. Thank you. I certainly, honestly, I hope it does. The scene with River and River's mother, Maribel, is one of the strongest in the film. In real time, we see the toll that all this has taken on the relationship, but also the incredible love that they share. Can you take us a little bit behind the scenes here and tell us how this scene came together and what it means for you? When you're making a documentary film, you just want people that you can really feel. I knew that I wanted to include the parent of one of our protagonists. We went and filmed with River and their mom, who I was thrilled when she agreed that she would go on camera and be part of this project. I didn't know what to expect. In fact, although I understood that River's parents had come to the U.S. from Salvador just before River's birth, I didn't know she wasn't going to speak English when I showed up at the house. In fact, doing that interview through a translator who for the most part was River, made it even stronger because as River is repeating their mom's words, like there's an emotional component to that also. She's just such an incredible woman and you can just feel the love between them. It actually wasn't until the interview was translated for me that it was clear to me that actually, despite the total lovingness between these two, that River's mom is repeatedly misgendering them and using he, him pronouns throughout the whole time they're together. So that's when I knew I had to go back and interview River again about that. And River's answer was so beautiful. It's good when you cry when you're actually doing the interview. <laughs> it was actually an interview we did over Zoom. It was like one question that I still had to ask River. So we set it up and the producer went over and the crew was over, but I was in New York on Zoom and River gave the answer that they give in the film. And it was like a minute and a half interview and that was it. It was like, that's so beautiful and perfect. And I'm so moved. And I know that's going in the film. Yeah, it's a beautiful moment. So my final question, and this is a bit of a spoiler alert. So if you haven't seen the movie, see the movie, or at least put this podcast on pause till you see the very end of the movie. Because my question is about the credit sequence. So in the credit sequence, there's this great joyful moment where I think everyone on your crew as well as River Alicia and Saifa are doing what you call frolicking in front of yes. the camera. Can you just yes. talk about why you decided to do that? And you, yes. you yourself are also frolicking. Yes, totally spontaneous. The idea that the three protagonists were gonna frolic was something that was planned out. 
There were some COVID-related mishaps with this shoot. It was supposed to happen in a different way. We were going to take them to a different location to hang out and film them all hanging out. Because of a COVID scare, our schedule got changed all around, and we just decided we would do it in the same backyard where we had done the filming. Set up a wide shot. And instead of them going to an amusement park on the Santa Monica Pier, which had been the plan at one point, we're like, oh, I'll just have them go through the shot and take a bow. I was standing elsewhere in the yard watching on a monitor as this was happening. I'm picturing it as the closing credits. I'm thinking like, oh, this is so adorable. We've all got to go. We've all got to go. The crew was actually really mad at me because I had, because if you're going to be on camera, they're like, but we didn't have makeup. We didn't, we weren't working. I was like, I wasn't neither. I promise I wasn't planning this. I saw it on the monitor. I saw how cute it was. I'm like, we've all got to run in and take bows ourselves. And then once we had shot that, we had to get the New York crew all bowing and it got a little complicated and a little more expensive to let everyone else take their bows on camera as well. But it felt like the right kind of vibe to end our film on. It really does. And I think maybe inadvertently it does something else, at least for me it did, which is It puts the people behind the camera and those in front of the camera on an equal playing field, which I really appreciated. Thanks. I feel like you're always trying to do that in a doc. That's why I think everything that I've worked on, we've had our own questions in there a little bit. I don't mind if you see the microphones. Like this is a film. We're actually not showing you people's full reality. You can't do that as a filmmaker. You're only showing a little bit of how you see something. So the fact that you get a little bit of a production shot into things or break the fourth wall a bit, I think is a good thing to do, especially in a documentary. Absolutely. Nonetheless, I don't mind the fact that our podcast is audio only for my benefit. So Julie, thank you so much for being here. Everybody is a film that everyone should definitely see. I learned a huge amount and I also found it touching, inspirational, and it is joyful. Thanks, Julie. Really appreciate it. And we have like one minute left. Did you want to do a hidden gem? A documentary that you feel maybe doesn't quite get the attention it deserves that you'd like to recommend? Well, a film that I wish more people would see. It's actually relatively recent and maybe it's coming from your turn. But hidden gem, I'd say hidden letters. The really unexpected, incredible story of an ancient language shared by Chinese women and kind of the political implications combined with how modern day Chinese officials are trying to co-opt and commodify this. I found it like a really deep layered, beautiful, thoughtful and surprising doc. One of those things that when I saw a screener of it, I immediately we looked up the director, Violet Fang, now we're friends, but we weren't at the time. So I, I like called her up, like, this film is amazing. I want to talk about it more because I enjoyed it so much. And another thing you have in common is you've both been on Top Docs. All so. right. <laughs> Thank you for that recommendation. And thanks again so much for being with us here today. And congratulations on the film, Julie. Thank you. Thank you.